Okay, everyone's found Revelation 3, okay? Why don't we stand and read as a church, as our custom? To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it, and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes thus will be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Please be seated. Well, as you could tell by the reading uh, this morning, we are now beginning a new chapter. We finally progressed out of chapter 2 in Revelation, and we're now in chapter 3. And today we're going to be spending our time learning from the fifth church uh, that Jesus addresses in Revelation, the church of Sardis. And we have two more to go after this, so we're getting close to the end of uh, the churches. But what made uh, this message unique was it's actually one that didn't start with words of commendation. In all of our churches so far, Jesus starts off with words of praise. In every church, he's got words of praise. This one in Sardis, he actually starts off with words of rebuke and concern off the bat. So that kind of makes it unique. But it's also a, a really relevant message to the North American Western Church. That's a really relevant message to us. It's written to a church that although it gives the appearance of being spiritually alive and strong from within, it's actually the opposite. It's a dead spiritual church. So it's a facade. It looks good from the outside, but what's really going on is that there's no spiritual life within the community. Now, as per usual, we're going to follow our format. I will remind you of the format. We're going to look at the church in the city, the correspondent, the commendation, the words of praise, the concern, the command, and the call to conquer. And that's been our format uh, throughout the sermon series. And as usual, too, we're going to ask the Holy Spirit now to search our hearts and minds for application to us because, um, again, this is a church. Sardis, is a, Sardis would do well in uh, Canada, <clears throat> would do well in Alberta would do it well in Calgary and even Okotoks in terms of the words that Jesus has to say to them. Uh, we fit right into their sort of uh, their words of warning here. So let's first look at the church in the city. The church in the city. <clears throat> the uh, church in Sardis, as you can see, is south of Thyatira. And it's about uh, a 50 mile, uh, sorry, 50 kilometers uh, difference between Thyatira and Sardis. So it's not too, too far away. But in terms of history and uh, of the church and the establishment of it there and even the city, again, we have no biblical record of anything really to go off of. And so we have to use extra biblical resources. And so uh, one of the things I learned in my studies was that geography was of huge importance to the city in terms of, and I believe that Jesus really keys off of the geography and their history in terms of what happened there for some of the word choices he uses to, to rebuke these guys. But... Um, what happened, or what, what the reality of Sardis is or was, is that a good portion of the city was located at the top of a steep hill. 
top of a steep hill, kind of came at the end of a mountain ridge. And uh, it was 1,500 feet above the valley below. Now, the, the key about this is there were three vertical rock faces that made Sardis very difficult to access. There was only one logical way up into the city because it was impenetrable and impregnable because of the geography. And I have a picture here of uh, what it looks like today. This is standing from the valley below. That's an example of what it looks like with the rock faces. And to the extreme left of the rock face, you'll see a little sort of uh, jut out there at the end. That's where the, the uh, local city is still, there's still remains of the, the ancient city today. So if you're a tourist, you kind of have to go up there into that edge on the left-hand side to, uh, to, to look at it. But um, you can see that it's a pretty uh, formidable place if you want to be an attacking uh, enemy and come to get it. And so the, the Sardines, the Sardinians, I don't know if you call them Sardines, maybe I'll call them Sardines. <laughs> the Sardines, I know I'm totally off. My mom will correct me uh, in the, when I get out of the sermon today. But uh, however, what, the people of Sardis, how's that? They, uh, they had a very sort of um, overconfident attitude because they, see, they saw themselves based on the location as uh, impregnable and sort of invincible because of the location. Now, ironically, in that overconfidence, twice the city fell. Once in 549 BC to King, uh, uh, the king of Persia, Cyrus, and we actually see Cyrus uh, in the book of Isaiah and places like that. Uh, but we also know that they fell around 200 BC, 350 years later, to Antiochus the Great. Now, how they got the city was they actually climbed the rock walls. They had two strong mountain climbers, and uh, they sent... Uh, their sort of army, uh, these rock climbers up onto the rock wall and then into the city and then sort of people followed. Now why that was so important is this, they never guarded the city or put anybody in the watchtowers. Why? Because they thought, well, we, no one's ever going to ca capture us. No one's ever going to have the confidence and the, 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 the cojones basically to want to climb this rock face to come get us. And sure enough, they fell twice because of lack of vigilance and lack of watchfulness. And what does Jesus say? Wake up. Wake up. Be vigilant. And I think he's playing on their history with what happened to them. But another key event was this earthquake they suffered in AD 17, about uh, 70 years prior from when this was written. And it was a catastrophic earthquake because Sardis was known for its wealth. It was known for its gold and known for its wool. And so it was extremely, extremely prosperous as a city. And again, as Albertans, we can sort of relate to that in terms of prosperity. But here's what happened. And the earthquake devastated them economically. And so it basically crushed their economy and crushed them in many ways. And the emperor at the time, Tiberius, gave them financial assistance to help them rebuild and try to climb to uh, their previous heights in terms of economic status. But again, this was just another reminder that they weren't as secure as they thought they were. They weren't as secure as they thought they were. And so one of the other, one other important thing was the religious atmosphere. The main deity there was uh, the same as Ephesus, this uh, god Artemis, goddess Artemis. And they had the fourth largest temple in the world in Sardis, apparently. And they know this because of archaeological findings. They measured the, the footings, like the foundations, and the, the, the temple there was 160 feet wide by 300 feet in length. And so there's the temple um, at the base that you can go see today. That's the Temple of Artemis. 
and it's like I said, 160 by 300. And uh, you can see again in the, the background the, the ancient city and so on and so forth. So we get an idea of the geography and the lay of the land and some of the history there. But what's interesting about the hot or uh, the temple is hot springs apparently were not too far from the city and they were celebrated as a spot where gods supposedly manifested their power to give life to the dead. Again, very interesting. What does he say? You're a church that thinks they're alive, <clears throat> but they're dead. And so I think the Lord was playing off of their history again and their current status as to try to give them understanding of what was going on from his point of view. <clears throat> For a second. So that's in their history. <clears throat> and Gordon Fee says it this way, and I think he does a great job of summarizing their attitude. The Sardines, the Sardines, the Sardines <laughs> they live something of an illusion as to their security and real significance. They live to an, as an illusion as their security and significance within the city. And of course, this would penetrate into the Christian community as well. So then Jesus has a word for them, and we pick up the correspondent here in, one, in verse 1. He says, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. So Jesus introduces himself as the one who holds the seven stars and who holds the seven spirits of God. The seven stars are clear what they are in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20. You may remember this when we looked at that. The, the, in 120, the seven stars were the angels of the churches. The angels. So he's saying, I'm the one that holds the angels in the churches. We know that angels are messengers. And so he, Jesus has a message to deliver to the church. So the way I understand this would be, he indicates that he's got sovereign control over the churches and the messengers to them. But the seven spirits of God are important too, because remember what seven represents in apocalyptic literature and in Jewish literature, seven rep represents completion, fullness, perfection. So when Jesus says, I hold the seven spirits, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, not not other seven different spirits. And we know this because of places like Rev, uh, Zechariah 4, 1 through 10. Remember what Zechariah says. This is Zechariah speaking with uh, the Lord. And he says, what do you see? And I answered, I, saw, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lamps on it with seven channels of the lamps. I asked the angel, who talked with me? What are these, my Lord? He answered me, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. He said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, uh, not by power or by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So a link between seven, the seven lamps, and the seven, and being the Holy Spirit. And here he says, he who holds the seven spirits has a message for you, and so we know this is the spirit of God. Now, why is this so important? This is a church that he calls spiritually dead spiritually lifeless who are heading on a pathway to to destruction really and so he says let me give you a heads up church this is the one who can, has sovereign control over the churches who has a message for you who's a source of spiritual life you need the spirit in your church you need his influence you need his power to continue on if you're going to make it and so this is why he addresses himself in this way so like I said in my intro, uh, one of the habits of Jesus is always to introduce himself um, through words of praise and commendation, but here we have the reversal. So he starts with actually words of rebuke, 
And so because Jesus starts that way, we're actually going to reverse our order and start that way as well. So let's look at the concern. He says, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. The key thing I want you to notice here is that there was a perceived reality in terms of the spiritual health of the church that was vastly different from Jesus. There was a perceived reality that was vastly different from the Lord's. You know, we have a phrase in our culture, oh, his reputation precedes him, or your reputation precedes you. And what do we mean by that? We mean that before we've met this individual, that we've heard things about them that either positive or negative that gives us a shape an, uh, an understanding of their character and we use that off mostly in a positive way when we meet someone we don't usually say your reputation precedes you when it's what's negative at least as good canadians we don't do that so it's generally the positive well from jesus's perspective sardis had a reputation from the outside looking in or from what people had heard they were an awesome church they were spiritually thriving they were alive they had a good reputation. And probably if you went to the church in Thyatira, they might say, you know what, uh, Dex, you need to go visit the church in, uh, in Sardis. They're, they have a great reputation there. They're, they have an amazing name. Go there after you go here. That's the kind of way they've been perceived. So why is this important? Because if you went to Sardis, um, you would see a very active church. If you have a good reputation, you must have a lot of things going on for you. So you would have gone there probably, and you would have heard sermons preached. You would have probably participated in communion. You could have heard worship uh, music going on. There's probably committees you could have served on uh, throughout the week. Maybe there was even uh, some youth events that could have been attended. Right? So there would, there would have been things going on within the church that would, would have, from all, from all aspects looking in, looked good. They would have been vibrant. But from Jesus' perspective, he said, you may look that way, but I, knew, I know the true nature of your spirituality, and you're dead. What a tremendous statement to make, because dead, the word dead in scriptural sense, of course, is not physical, it's spiritual, and it's used to describe the unbelieving people who have not known the Lord yet. Right? Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but now you've been made alive with Christ. So he's comparing the church in Thyatira, who are committed themselves to Christ, to basically being unbelievers in terms of the way they're living out their Christian walk. So the question I had was, what was going on? What was going on? Because, you know, it's important we, we try to understand this to some degree, because there was no hint of external pressures like the church in Smyrna here. In church in Smyrna, he says, uh, you know, you, you're being persecuted. So therefore, um, we don't see any pressures that they were going to deny Christ's name. There's no hint of either internal compromise either, like Pergamum or Thyatira, where they had false teachers in their midst, and they were embracing them, and some had fallen, them, fallen after them. No hint of idolatry or immorality. I mean, if Jesus, if that was truly the major issue going on in the church, he would just come out and say it. He's had no problem in the four, uh, three churches or the four churches before saying, this is your problem. So he's not, he doesn't flat out tell them that's their issue. So what was going on? Well, we know for sure it was sin. 
We know for sure it was sin because he actually tells them in verse uh, 3 they need to repent. And he talks about their clothing be like soiled garments. And we're going to look at that in a second, but soiled garments is obviously another reference to having sin or unrighteous living. So when we know that they're rebelling against the Lord in some way. So I'd suggest that probably the, the, the best observation we have here is found in actually verse 2, when he tells them to wake up and strengthen the things that remain. And then he says this, For I have, I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So his issue with the church there is they're dead, but they haven't completed anything. Now that completion could come in two ways. That completion could come in the fact that um, uh, they had basically uh, failed to do the deeds of God. In other words, Christ had a standard of living which they didn't meet, or they somewhat knew the standard of living but never could persevere in seeing them through. So for example, in the era of generosity, they knew they were to be generous, but they could never actually follow through and be generous, as opposed to not knowing they were to be generous at all. But regardless, we know that they failed from the Lord's perspective to actually follow through in living out the Christian life. And it would have obviously been of some kind of compromise, not preference. Not preference, but compromise, because he says you need to repent and you soil your garments. <clears throat> But what this, what, the, what this tells us then is one thing for sure. Because they hadn't completed what the Lord had, had started, they were a church of complacency. They were a church satisfied with the status quo that just went through the motions of doing church. Confident in their success, their popularity, maybe the busyness of the church ministries, they were not living the standard that Christ has set before them, and they become comfortable. They love their comforts. Bruce Metzger, a commentary I read, the author that wrote this, this church is an example of merely nominal Christianity. Merely nominal Christianity, church by name only, but not by spiritual life. John MacArthur, in his commentary, wrote this. <laughs> it was good. Sardis was like a museum where stuffed animals were exhibited in their natural habitats. Everything appeared to be normal, but nothing was alive. Good visual. Well, this is a real message to us, isn't it? In the terms of the West. Generally like Sardis, affluent, well-to-do, really busy, beautiful buildings. Parking lot, pretty full. Walk in the church, pretty full. Kids ministries, music, everything. And yet, void of spiritual life. People just going through the motions to check a box, saying, I went to church today, just like I went to work, and just like I went to the gym, you know, I went to the grocery store. But void of spiritual life, vitality. Now, I struggle to nail down the specifics in this in my studies and all the commentaries I read and people I listened to. Like, I went through about seven resources. And it's really difficult to really pinpoint exactly what's going on. We know, we know the big picture, like Jesus' autopsy. And we know that they obviously they weren't fulfilling what God had, had uh, mandated. So I struggled to nail down the specifics in my thinking, like, what would it actually look like to be there? 
But you know, maybe it's good the Lord didn't give a specific because <laughs> then if you only embrace that specific, you might make excuses for yourself elsewhere. But I think there's a general principle we can follow when a church is in this position, a general principle from Scripture. You see, 2 Corinthians 5 says this, For the love of Christ controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we all have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. Do you understand the general principle in this verse? Every human being has two choices. That's it. When God takes the, your, the, you know, the report card of our lives, he basically says, I know what things you did that were living for yourself, done out of selfish motivation, and I know the things you did in terms of living for me. Those are the only two options for every human being's life. You either live for Christ or you live for self. There is no third category. So if you're in a place where you're, if the spirit or the love of Christ controls you, you're living for Christ. If it's not, you're living for self. If you're a spiritually dead church, the general principle is you're not living for the Lord. You're living for your own personal um, preferences and personal choices. You sit on the throne of your life and not Jesus Christ. And this is why in Luke 9.23, the Lord himself has to say, anyone who wants to be my disciple must deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Self-denial. Dennis Kinlaw, um, I've quoted him before. He's the guy that I sat in his room. I was maybe a Christian for two or three years. He was a professor and a, uh, the president of the Asbury College in, in Kentucky and had a library named after him. And So I'm sitting beside what I consider the modern-day Apostle Paul. He's the guy that turned to me and said, Andy, do you know who God is? And I'm like, oh man, like, is this a trick question? Like, uh, I was terrified to answer the question because here's this like a Paul type figure asking me. And he's the one who taught me. He goes, Andy, God is love. God is love. And then he started to explain theologically why you need to start there to understand who the Lord is. But here's the cool thing. Um, he actually said this in regards to selfishness. These are his, these are his quotes his questions, he asks people or himself to know if he's living for self. What's in it for me? What will I look like? And what will I get out of it? What's in it for me? You know, am I willing to do this? Uh, I'm willing to do this, but I need to benefit from it. It has to benefit my life for sure for me to be involved. Number two, what will I look like? Can I appear generous? Can I appear funny? Can I appear smart so people will accept me and think I'm cool and invite me into their in-group, right? Or will I look like a doofus? Because if I look like a doofus, I'm sure not doing it. So if I look like a doofus going on to the streets in Okotoks in about two hours, I ain't doing it. But I don't want to look like a doofus. Okay, and what will I get out of it? More money, leisure, praise, and so on and so forth. These are good questions that Dennis Kinlaw uses to address the Luke 9.23 in the Second Corinthians passage. So Jesus uh, has a command. 
And thank goodness he has the command he does, because I heard a pastor one, uh, named by the last name of Charles say this, anything dead should be buried, <laughs> right? Typically, anything dead needs to be buried. But thank goodness Jesus doesn't have that approach to the church. Look what he says in verse uh, 2. Wake up, strengthen the things that remain, which are about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it, and repent. Stephanie and I were practicing for music this week, and uh, she does opera lessons and stuff, and in opera you do staccato notes. Like, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> that kind of thing, right? I heard her doing some staccato notes. Obviously, I need some practice in opera, but uh, practice in many things. But anyway, staccatos. The Lord gives five staccato commands. Bang, 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 bang. Wake up, right? Wake up, strengthen, that remains. Remember, keep, and repent. Five staccato comments. Just bang, 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 do these things. Some pastors will give you five, a whole sermon on the five, the five staccato points. I'm just going to mention two. Just mentioned two. First one is wake up. The word wake up could be actually better translated, um, keep on being faithful or be vigilant. And I suggest again, this is not by accident based on Sardis history. They've fallen asleep. And as a result, two enemy nations conquered them because they failed to watch the wall. They were overconfident in who they were and they thought they were invincible and it proved to be fa fatal for them. And Jesus is saying this, don't see yourself as invincible. Wake up spiritually, get with the program, so to speak. Again, I think this is really important. He's saying, be watchful, be vigilant, don't shake off your apathy. Perhaps we're never more in danger, friends, when we're, when we're feeling comfortable and secure and at ease. <laughs> and the way to do that, he says, is to remember. He says, remember what you've received and heard and keep it. Now, this idea of remembering was not just to recall. It wasn't just to recall, like, I forgot something. Oh, I remember where it was. It, the impl implication is if you're going to remember this, you're going to actually remember it to follow through on it. So it's remembrance to change the way you're living. That's why he says, remember what you've received and heard. Now keep it and repent. So the whole thing has to do with life change. So if they're to remember what they received in the past, that means they're to go back to the basics of the gospel. When the gospel first came to Sardis and they heard it, go back to the gospel message. What, what, and what was that gospel? That the Lord laid down his life for them so that they could lay down his, their lives for him. I always say there's two deaths at Calvary, right? There's him for us. But then there's us for him in return as a love expression back to what he's done for us. And so we, they were to remember in this way. And that would have involved embracing all the teaching that they knew to be true that the Lord had given them. Now, if they didn't, there was a strong warning. And we pick this up in um, uh, verse 3. He says, therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will know, you will not know at what hour I come to you. 
We are familiar in the Christian community with the word thief, right? Jesus used it to refer to himself in Matthew 24 in terms of his second coming, right? He says, I'm going to come like a thief in the night. Paul used it of, of Jesus in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 2, 4. And we should look at that together right now. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul said this about Christ. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and will not escape. Now here's why this is really important. The thief in this context, who is he coming for? Not the Christians. He's coming for the people that don't love him. It's to the non-Christian that Jesus comes upon a thief, like a non-Christian that Jesus comes upon like a thief, right? They're saying peace and safety, but then destruction comes upon them. What's 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 Jesus saying now? You're my church. <laughs> You're my church. You're my people. But if you don't wake up, I'm coming to you like I'm coming to the non-believer, like a thief. And why is that important? Because again, this, the, the most important part of the thief aspect is the suddenness of it. Again, I don't think it's a play on words, it's, or it is a play on words, it's intentional here, because, again, the, those two previous nations climbed the wall as thieves to steal from the Sardans, and nobody knew. And he's saying, I'm coming in the same way. It's going to be suddenly, and you won't expect it. This is awesome, because as a wake-up call, he's giving them time. This is the grace of God again. Every time we see warnings in the churches, he's also a period of grace. Again, things that are dead are supposed to be buried, but not in Christ's agenda. He says, no, I'm giving you time to repent. I'm giving you a wake-up call now because I don't want to do this to you. This is not the way I want to be involved in your lives. I want to be the source of your spiritual power, that my love controls you. That's what I want. So I'm giving you time to change. So it's really cool how the Lord is gracious here, but yet he's not one to be toyed with. He will come in this way, but he's giving them a time of grace. Now, not all the start, people from Sardis required this warning within the church. We learn in verse 4 that there was a small group that were worthy of praise. And so now we come to the commendation. Verse 4, But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. From here now to the end, Jesus talks a lot about clothing, <laughs> a lot about clothing. There's here with people here with soiled garments. Then he's going to talk about those who are worthy walk in white. And then he's going to talk about the promise of a reward in verse 5 for those in glory who receive white garments. So a lot of talk about clothing. Perhaps this is because, again, Sardis was known for gold and for its wool production. So maybe it has to do with, with clothing, but I'm not totally sure on that. But here's what, we, here's what we want to notice here. White in the Bible and in Revelation will symbolize holiness. It symbolizes purity and especially identification with righteousness or identification with, with Christ himself. Soiled garments, always in the context of the, the Bible, refers to sin. Not only does the context tell us that, but don't forget how Revelation is rooted in the Old Testament. So let's look at an amazing passage comparing uh, garments, one being soiled and sort of um, representing sin, and one being righteous and representing sort of white and pure and clean. Zechariah 3, 1 to 6. He says, Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. 
Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. So again, a contrast between clothing. And he's saying in Sardis, there are some people here who actually are spiritually alive. There's some people that aren't dead. They actually have completed their deeds in the sight of God. They are living for him more than they are themselves. And they've not embraced the compromise that the other church, people in the church have. They're not just going through the motions. They're not just checking off a box on Sunday morning. They truly want to live for the Lord in every aspect of their lives. Now, this is a pretty cool too, because I want you to think, just practically speaking, going back 2,000 years, you and I, when we're frustrated with a church and we want to go somewhere else and we, want a, and we feel like our church is dead or dying or whatever the reasons are, we have options. We can go somewhere else. We can shop. It's called going to another denomination. In Sardis, what other denomination do they have? Zero. There's nowhere else to go. This is the church, man. This is, this is it. So perhaps there's a lesson for us in this. In this church, these people had to persevere. Persevere and just say, you know what? I'm going to stick it out. I'm going to stick it out and I'm going to actually minister to the people here and I'm going to have a role in trying to bring revival. Now, I'm not saying that you have to do that. I mean, I, I mean, I personally left one to go to another and thankfully now we're here. So God used my choices to bring a church plan out of it. So it's not that you're wrong to leave. I'm just saying it's interesting here in this context, there was nowhere to go and you could still be called worthy in a dead church. So when they told the church to wake up, these Christians who had not sold the garments probably had an influential role in getting that church back to revival, if in fact they did. So very, just something to think about in terms of uh, how this plays out. So finally, we finish with the call to conquer. There's going to be incredible rewards for churches who remain faithful to Jesus Christ. He first says this, He who overcomes will be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has a ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. <clears throat> White garments again. Here we come back to the, the, this whole thing. White garments in the ancient culture, as well as ours, actually are associated with festivities and celebratory occasions, right? There's a reason why we brides dress in white, typically, at their weddings, right? I mean, it's a celebratory occasion. Um, apparently, in the ancient culture, if you won victory over enemy nations in battle, you'd wear, the people of the, the, the town and the cities would wear white as celebrating the soldiers coming back and the conquering king. So in the ancient culture, even in ours, white is celebratory for weddings and victory in battle and so on. Well, in Revelation, we have a picture of both. That's the attire of heaven. It's the attire of, of eternal reward. And re let's just turn quickly to finish here in Revelation 19. Look at verse 7 with me. Verse 7, 19-7. He says, 
uh, hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the supper of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And the bride, of course, is us, the, 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 the believing church. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So again, we're dressed in white for the marriage supper as a celebratory feast in heaven. Then I love it in verse 11. Here's a victory battle attire. It talks about Jesus uh, in verse 11 being like on a white horse and so on. Then look at verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that it will um, that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. So again, the people following Christ in battle array are dressed in white. The awesome thing here is white garments are a picture of the clothing that Christ gives us for standing victorious and not compromising this world. He dresses us. He's, we're dressed for success, <laughs> the success of inheriting the kingdom of God. Second promise is having our names not erased in the book of life. The book of life, by the way, is mentioned six times in Revelation, but it's first rooted in the Old Testament. In Exodus 32 and 32, we first see it. Moses, remember, he goes to give the Ten Commandments. When he comes down, what does he find Israel doing? Playing the harlot, right? Committing adultery with the, the golden calf. After God says, I'm wiping these Israelites out, Moses goes and prays, and he prays and says this, Now, God, please forgive their sin, but if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. In other words, in the Bible, the book of life is seen as a divine register. It's a divine register. Just like we have registries today, right? All of our names are written in a, in a register, and if we die, they eventually get like, crossed off. Well, there was a divine registry in biblical times. Um, it was the book of life. And so he's saying this, your name's in the book in life. Your name's in there. But if you do not change and overcome the way I'm saying, I'm taking your name off the registry, it's no longer going to be there any longer. But again, having it not erased means that it's a picture of the security of being in glory one more time. And third, I will confess his name. I love this. I will confess his name. We know the famous passage, right? In Matthew 10, 32, Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will confess him before my Father who's in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will deny him before my Father who's in heaven. So here, again, the Lord is saying, If you stay faithful and true to me, when you stand in glory, I will confess your name publicly to the Father and to the angels. And all of us know how awesome that feels, right? Ever been to award, award ceremonies, right? You know, you, you're in the high school and you've, you, uh, you know, your team won the volleyball championships or there's been an art contest and your picture gets chosen or it's time for grad, you know, and you're, and you're waiting for your name to be called or you get married, right? And, you, and you're looking forward to the announcement, you know, I now call you so-and-so husband and wife, and your, that name is called unit, as a unit. We love it when our name is called, when celebratory occasions are, have occurred. And he says, I will confess your name publicly for all of heaven to hear, if you will wake up and live for me and let the light, love of Christ control you.
awesome picture of being with the Lord. So what do we learn? I've got five lessons and I'm going to staccato through them quick. <laughs> a church's reputation, if, I should say is not, not if not, a church's reputation is not the true measure of its spiritual health, Jesus's. <laughs> right? I know, you're, I know you have a name, but I know you're dead. So a church's reputation is not the true measure of its spiritual health. Christ knows. Christ knows. You know, I'm not trying to pick on anyone or, or, or point anyone out, but this is just important because it's public knowledge. But this is Mars Hill in, in Seattle with Mark Driscoll. Janice and I were huge fans of him and that church, and I listened to him a lot when I first became a Christian. Bought his books on marriage, everything. But Mars Hill fell. And there's a podcast about the demise of Mars Hill and how it happened. But basically, it came down to pride and arrogance. It was a massive, massive church that started off in a pub like with a few individuals that grew to thousands upon thousands and had a global reputation, and it went down. Pride and arrogance destroyed the church. Jesus was watching this the whole time going, I know you have a reputation. Andrew and Janice and Okotoks listen to you, but I know that you're spiritually in trouble. Lesson number two. Fundamentally, dead churches are living for themselves and not for Christ, right? I mean, you can only live for two ways. If you're, if you're in that position, you have to be living for, you're not living for the Lord to be dead. The love of life Christ controls us, right? He's the essence of the decisions we make and how we live through this world. Number three, followers of Jesus are to conduct themselves in a manner that would be ready for, the Jesus, for Jesus to return at any time. Right, so we're to be like that's the thief in the night thing. We're to be living as if we're always in expectation of his return. That's always to be the way we conduct ourselves and to think. We're always ready and excited about his return. So therefore, the decisions we make and the way we live now matters because we're wanting him to be basically say, say, "Well done, my faithful servant." When we when he shows up. Lesson four: It's possible to be found worthy by God in a spiritually dead place. I love that lesson, right? He says, there's a few of you who've soiled their garments. And, but, oh, sorry, there's a few who haven't soiled their garments. Yeah, so you can be in a really struggling church, and God can still see you as a light in that church. I think that's a pretty cool lesson. And finally, it, this is a repeat every week. I just word it in different ways. <laughs> there are heavenly rewards for those who chose to live Christ-worthy lives. Right, the promise of heaven. I'll confess my, your name, I'll give you white garments, and I will not blot your name out of the book of life. Okay, you know, you know what, we'll finish with this. So, kind of cool. <clears throat> this is a blast from the past, at least from my past. I don't know about, some of you won't even, maybe even know this song based on your age. But Tony said to me, Andrew, why don't we sing Onward Christian Soldiers? We're going out to war this afternoon. Uh, and uh, made a joke about, uh, not a joke, but I would say, we used to sing that as kids and whatever, and, and it used to be an awesome like tune hymn for like, you know, persevering in this world. So since we're going out today uh, on the streets, and we're going to start that ministry, and we're going to do spiritual battle against the principal power of the air, uh, but we're going to do it in fun, and we're going to have a good time. But uh, yeah, so we'll stand and sing to finish.